Welcome back to 24 Faithful. We are continuing our journey into season number two. Actually, we're going to be looking at the last six episodes of season number two, wrapping it up today. And we are joined by Bradley Adams and Joel Woods, as usual. And before we get to them, though, we also are joined by some listener feedback. We got a email from Sheila, who says that she's a big fan from Peru. So she's been re-watching 24 on Netflix, and she wanted to thank us for the podcast as our opinions and analysis have really made her rethink and her appreciation of the show. So she must have been listening to the ones before Joel came on, though. <laughs> That's probably when she started listening. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of this email here. I really enjoyed the Marie and Warner family line. I never suspected her or even on rewatch until she appeared in the office. Did I ever think of her as a terrorist? Obviously speaking about Marie there. I think I became really sad about Mason, especially knowing that he wanted to be a teacher and could have been a better father. I did grow fond of him as he advised Michelle and gave her courage to ask Tony out. Now, as for the last episodes of the season, I always liked take the idea of 24 of great characters and that ambition behind the plots. In this case, the oil prices will go up due to the war. And I really like Yusuf, the foreign agent who did everything he could to avoid the war when he is brutally beaten because of his Middle Eastern looks and when riots and violence appear after the nuclear bomb detonation. It's a realistic depict of racism. And for someone who is not from the U.S., it brings light upon this delicate topic, which reminds me about the Palmer son back in season one, who was accidentally involved in the death of a white man who raped his sister. Now, no one would believe it was an accident as he was black and the other man white. So that was her feedback on this. And so Sheila, thank you for that. We appreciate you doing that. And yeah, they definitely do a good job bringing to light the different racial and political issues that show up. And it's interesting too, because this was back in 2002 when this was maybe early 2003. I can't think of the exact airing dates, but somewhere in there. So it's still relevant today as it was back then. So thank you for that and uh, any of you other listeners uh, would like to uh, send some feedback we would certainly appreciate that you can send that through our website 24faithful.com and we look forward to that it is actually a very interesting point that Sheila makes there as well by the way just before we move on because when we do come to season six I'm probably going to spend a lot of time talking about how bad the sort of the racial politics angle is in that season but I mean the early seasons 24 has been criticized almost in general for it but as she put, rightly points out, you know, the way that they explore it with David in season one, the way it's explored in season two, you know, sort of the twist of Marie being sort of this stereotypical Caucasian sort of Californian American girl who's actually <coughs> working to explode a nuclear bomb in Los Angeles. The way they twist that around and, you know, raises not a terrorist use if actually the way they sort of play with that does actually work really nicely, I think. So, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough to season two. It nailed it. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. On to the plot points for today, though. We last left our hero searching for a recording, the source recording of the Cyprus audio that had come to fruition or came to the surface. Ali was supposedly working with three Middle Eastern nations, and they were all <coughs> identified on this tape. And that tape was causing David Palmer to have to sign a declaration of war and send um, some planes with bombers headed for them. And then Michelle had her inkling of, well, it seems like there's a 
talking to Syed Ali that she didn't believe that the recordings were real, that there was at least a chance that they were fabricated. She brought Jack into it. And so Jack was starting to track that down behind CTU's back. Um, And so he's trying to track this down. And as a result of Jack trying to search that down, we have David Palmer then trying to do diligence. Like, okay, let's just make sure we have this potential that we're working on false information. We need to give a little bit of time to be able to do this. And so David is getting under a lot of pressure as he's struggling with making this decision, or I say struggling, but trying to give Jack time. This leads to David getting put on trial and having all that take place. And so Bradley, I know that you have a a lot of good notes here. Yeah, I mean, the trial of David Palmer, as I've sort of called it, I mean, David calls that himself, hasn't he? Sort of cut to the chase. This is what it is. It's not a discussion. It is quite literally, as you said, that they're, they're putting him on trial, um, which is, it's, it's a bizarre concept. It's a, it's a very strange situation to be in. But that episode 4 till 5 a.m. is just magnificent, mostly because of the stuff that happens with David and the rest of the cabinet. Watching it, you kind of, I mean, it infuriated me hearing like Roger Stanton's testimony, the fact that he lies about, not knowing where the bomb was and the fact that he just, you know, he broke and he, he said what David wanted to hear. And then the recording that they had not actually featuring his later confession that would have sort of disproved what he was saying. It's really infuriating watching. And yet you kind of are very, very gripped by it, mostly because Dennis Haysbert is just phenomenal in this whole episode and this whole run particular but particularly this episode, the way he's so sort of dismissive and actually angry at the thought of, detractors being in his conference room the very famous speech he gives to the rest of the cabinet where he says sort of criticizes can they possibly look him in the eye and say that he's disabled um and even at the end when he's sort of being led away he sits there and says nothing he just looks horrified and angry and just like he wants to kill someone and it, it's so so good to watch so as much as seeing david pulled from office in the most ridiculous circumstances because the cabinet aren't happy that he's actually trying to protect innocent lives you know it, it's, it's very much balanced out by the fact that Haysburg is just a joy enjoy for the most part the storyline however one minor complaint that I have is that I felt like it seemed like the Cypress audio storyline just went on forever. I don't understand how many different ways can you produce the recording, not produce the recording, have your have have a lead, not have a lead. It felt like it was going on the entire second half of the season, to be honest. I mean, it just felt like it would never end. But it did produce some memorable sound bites. I guess you could say David Palmer's speech when um, right before the trial of David Palmer began that Bradley was referring to probably one of my favorite speeches David made of the entire series to me. Just the confidence and the assuredness of his voice. Dennis Haysbert has that very presidential kind of voice. And when he speaks and the tone of his voice and, you know, how deep it is, it makes you want to listen to him. So I thought I thought those last uh, six episodes were probably, as far as Palmer goes, were probably some of my favorite of the of the entire series because it put him in a vulnerable position, but at the same time, it was some of his greatest um, talking points of the entire series to me. I mean, I said last week about how sort of in those last two episodes that we were talking about last week, you could actually see why the cabinet started to look, go against David. He started to look a little bit weak. And actually at the start of these six, that sort of, it's still there. It still feels like sort of quote Ryan Chappelle from later in the show. Um, he's sort of letting the tail wag the dog uh, as it were. And 
it's interesting that they they pitched that for sort of three four episodes up until the betrayal of from Mike and from Prescott and all of that and, and and the trial and everything that comes after it. It's very interesting that in those episodes he does for a very brief flickering moment seem not up to it almost to suggest that they're right. Even though we know from our perspective that Jack is going to get this evidence, we know that the Cypress audio is false, we know that eventually David is going to be proved right. I, I do find it very intriguing that they pitch the opposite side to that, that David looks like he doesn't really know what he's doing. But yeah, you know, I, the, the one thing that's um, particularly sad about it, again, it's another bit of praise for David, David Hayes, but he's seen at the end of the show, or at the end of the season, sorry, um, where he forgives the cabinet and doesn't forgive Mike, another great, one of David's great speeches. But Mike, having spent so long in season one and the early parts of season two, seeming like a great character, ends up kind of horrible. I mean, he locks Lynn in a room, which ultimately leads to her in a critical condition, falling down some stairs, and he betrays David. And he does all this horrible, you know, all this stuff that he absolutely should not have ever been doing. It's really sad to watch, actually, because you kind of start to really like Mike. And then he does all this. I know he's doing it in what he thinks is the best interest, but it's not great for Mike. I agree that that was kind of like this six part here is kind of like the downturn of Mike in in my appreciation for him. But at the same time, this was also the time when I really started to like Aaron, Aaron Pierce. Because I started thinking about that because Aaron has been, as I look back over 24, he's one of my, he's definitely in the top 10 favorite characters that I have, maybe top five even, if I were to really go through it. But I started thinking about it. It's like, okay, in season one, he's not really... He's, he's not really in there a lot. There's just a few little pieces with him and they're, they're good, but, but it's not like he really stands out and things like that. But with this one, right before David gets put on trial, David doesn't know about all of it yet, but he's having some suspicions. And so he pulls Aaron in and talks to him, which probably is not a usual occurrence for that to take place. But, but he pulls Aaron in, has him sit down and starts asking him his opinion which which to me for David to ask somebody's opinion would speak very highly of that person, first of all. But then also the way that Aaron answered was really good. And he was trying to be very careful, you could tell, but he wanted to be helpful also. And so I don't know if he actually knew what was actually happening, but but he also had those instincts of, okay, something's not right. Something is not lining up. And as David was explaining it to him, He's like, I just pulled our troops, and for the last 30 minutes, I haven't been able to get a hold of my vice president. And Aaron's like, yeah, basically basically says, yeah, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> and all this time, because David also prefaced, he's, he's like, okay, so how long have you been doing your job? And he said, since the second Reagan administration. So he's going on, what, 12 to 16 years of service working under all the different presidencies. And it's like, okay, I've never seen that kind of situation before. So he's like, yeah, there's something wrong. And so his answer, though, was you have good instincts. I would listen to them if I were you. Kind of like giving a nod toward, yeah, there's definitely something brewing. So keep paying attention. You're going down the right road. You know, when you're sort of stuck between a decision or some, you know, in your mind, you're you're not <clears throat> sure about what to do. And you have sort of that you, one predominant thing that's made you thinking. And then there's a little voice at the back of your head telling you you're right about it. That's Aaron. Mm-hmm. So you're saying Aaron's the, Aaron's the guy on his shoulder? Telling you not Correct. to do something? He is. Yes, <laughs> okay. he is. And you know what? If we all had an Aaron Pierce on our shoulder, wouldn't the world be a better place? Well, yes. I wouldn't be doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was great. Also, after his trial, of course, David got isolated and all that. And Aaron was t- 
told not to talk to him. And so David kept trying to talk with him. And then finally, David's like, okay, well, can, were you instructed not to listen? And he's like, no. <laughs> and so he's like, okay, then sit down and listen for a second. And so he was listening and, and he finally said something. And then David's like, I thought you weren't supposed to talk. He's like, I'm trying my best. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he definitely had... He definitely has allegiance and respect for David, but with his position, he was struggling with, okay, I have to follow my instructions being in the role that I am, but I also know what they're doing to him is not right. And I have so much respect. And so you you can see that struggle. And he does the right thing as well, isn't he? Yeah. This was kind of foreshadowing for Aaron, Um, him kind of doing his job, but going off the reservation a little bit, kind of uh, leaning a little bit more towards what is right instead of what is protocol. And I think this was kind of foreshadowing of Aaron in later seasons because Aaron does this uh, quite a bit in future seasons. Mm -hmm. So I think this was kind of a uh, testing the water, so to speak. But Aaron respects the office of the president of the United States. But he also knows What's right is right. And he agrees with, with David's decision to, to pull the troops. And I think in Aaron's mind, yeah, I still have a job to do. But at the same time, what they did to David wasn't right because they were a little quick to kind of pull him off, kind of pull the trigger a little bit. So I think Aaron was trying to do as much as he could to help David without actually violating the job that he was doing. And I think kind of answering the question without answering the question, when when he basically told David that uh, you have good instincts, I'd listen to him if I were you, that's him basically telling David you're right without actually saying you're right because of the position that he's in. And I think that was um, that showed not only his allegiance to David, but his willingness to do what's right no matter what the cost. Like when he got David that sat phone, Aaron knew that potentially could get him arrested, but he did it because he thought it was right. And that's going to be a trademark of Aaron Pierce over the next several seasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, all this is going on because it's all hinging on Jack getting this recording and come to find out he gets tortured to try to get the chip, but he doesn't have it because he passed it off to Yusuf and Kate Warner. Kate, thank you. You're welcome. I was going to say Marie's sister. (laughs) Yusuf and Kate to take back while he was, and so they separated, and he gets captured and tortured to be able to find out where the chip is. And that's just incredible because this is when Jack dies. I mean, it's it's incredible to think that Peter Outerbridge is Ronnie. I mean, Peter Outerbridge is wonderful in this role. He's so, so good at capturing how psychic Ronnie is. But it's incredible to think that Ronnie is the one person who killed Jack Bauer. Not Henderson. Logan didn't do it. His brother didn't do it. His father didn't do it. Marwan didn't do it. The Drazens couldn't do it. No, the person who killed, you know, the the Russians couldn't do it. The one person who could kill Jack Bauer is Ronnie, the guy hired by Peter Kingsley. Mm-hmm. He could have ended everything right then. He could have just ended the entire show if he would have just left him dead. And that would have saved everybody. That would have saved all the villains a bunch of time of having to jump through hoops to get their stuff done if he would have just left him dead. And in true villain fashion, he had to be an idiot. So he wanted to bring him back to life. And that was probably, if we were to rank them, that's probably in the top five of the worst mistakes of the entire series. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, he still needed Jack. 
the mistake was killing Jack to begin with. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know that whole situation with Jack dying and coming back caused heart issues for him for years to come now. And it's prominent as we get a little further into this ses- session, too. But but yeah, so I think the doctor, though, was very brave to help Jack in that situation because here he has Jack laying on this table. This doctor doesn't know who he is other than he's getting tortured. And these other guys have guns, but the doctor decides to help Jack anyway. Um, I, I just think that was really brave of him to do that. I mean, it's mainly that doctor two hours before, that was, you know, he was doing his general work in the urgent care center and then... He has to try and save a man who's been shot and then watch Jack pull an electronic chip out of his stomach and then gets kidnapped and uh, has to save his life under threat of being shot if he can't. And then actually he also kills someone because although Jack does end up shooting, I can't think of his name now. Oh, wow, that's bad of me. Um, (laughs) Don't look at me like that, Joel. Oh, no, I've I've had a nightmare. No, can't think. Anyway, he ends, obviously Jack ends up ends up shooting him, the guy, the guy who takes over from Ronnie. But actually, it, the only reason he can do that is because the doctor stabs him with the drug. The drug's going to kill him if Jack doesn't shoot him. So the doctor has gone from two hours earlier being a doctor. Now he's actually someone who tried to kill someone. It's mental. But you are right. He is, he is very brave to actually help Jack because he could very easily be shot. Mm-hmm. It was a rough day for the doctor, okay? <laughs> I mean, he started the day thinking it was just going to be a regular run-of-the-mill day, thinking that he was just going to come in, do his job, maybe have a couple surgeries, and then, you know, go home. And then he gets held up at gunpoint. He gets kidnapped, told to bring somebody back to life. It's very traumatizing for the doctor, okay? So I, for one, do not blame him for the actions that he took. At the same time, I also do not remember the name of the... uh, (laughs) It's um, also not in my notes, so this is no help to me. Probably something you should have made a note of, Bradley. Um, <laughs> Even, I wrote it down as Ronnie as well, which it clearly is not. Oops. Doesn't sound like a guy named Ronnie, but I've seen him before. But it was, you could tell that it was kind of building to that point because the doctor kept giving him some questionable looks. Like he was, he would look like he was struggling. Like, should I help him? Should I not? Do I want to live? Do I want to die? You know, that kind of thing. When he actually went through and, and stabbed him with that, syringe it kind of you you could kind of see it on the on the doctor's face like what did i just do and then jack holds him up at gunpoint again so it's like he can't do anything right (laughs) (laughs) no but i mean i mean the whole the whole torture sequence the whole uh saving jack the whole jack escaping or or killing uh the guys just it's just remarkably good and raymond o'hara is his name good job bradley yeah very good had to solve that mystery (laughs) but How we, anyway, how so, so back at CTU, though, um, when Jack left, he um, sprained Tony's ankle or broke it. I can't remember which, but Tony's on crutches the rest of the season. And obviously, Tony is mad at Jack and against Jack. Michelle's working behind Tony's back. But then Jack gets the gets the chip or the recording in and convinces Tony that maybe just maybe the recording was fabricated. And so Tony starts looking like, okay, well, we'll look into it. We're still going to keep following, but we're going to kind of keep keep this up and we'll, we'll follow through with it. And then Tony and Michelle end up going against Chappelle and working behind <laughs> his back to help Jack through that. And as you noted here, Bradley, it was a, it was a much needed refresh from Michelle being secretive and going against Tony. 
Yeah, it works a lot better, doesn't it? The dynamic, I sort of said it last week, I think, that having had 12, 13, 14 episodes where there was clearly something going on between them, there was there was a spark between them, you know, the, the email we read out earlier mentioned about Mason essentially encouraging Michelle to ask out Tony. It was all really nice. And then you spent three three episodes, three, four episodes with Michelle being fairly adversarial with Tony because Tony didn't believe everything, anything and didn't want to go with Jack and, and all the rest of it. And actually things at CTU run a lot more smoothly um, when they're working together. And I'm, I'm glad they ended up pushing them back like that very, very quickly. I mean, Chappelle in this stretch becomes worse than Mason was at any point in season one. I mean, he, he is the biggest stickler for the rules, the biggest, I am going to put a brick wall here and not listen to anything on the other side of it. And no interest at all in the opposite opinion. It's staggering. I can't say, I can't say many people will have supported Chappelle in this, to be honest. Well, when you think about, I mean, look at all the seasons of 24, all the ones that Keeper was in, going to ignore the other one. Pay attention to all the seasons of 24. Has there ever been a season, any season, where Jack worked solely with the government throughout the entire season without going against them one time? No. Okay. And that usually means that he comes at odds with whoever's running things. So Chappelle was just the latest in a in a, a a long extended line of authority figures that Jack had issue with. To be fair, this one isn't Jack strictly. Although Jack, Chappelle has the problem with Jack. Fair enough. You are right. Yes, go on. He also had an issue with him in in season one too, where Chappelle was ready to throw him in prison. But Chappelle may have been the worst of the bunch. Not as far as not as far as acting or anything like that, because I I thought his acting was superb. But as far as his actions, the way that he acted towards Jack from season one all the way up to you know his season three, really the way that he acted towards Jack was just at least Mason kind of relented at some point. Chappelle was a very unrelenting authority figure, and I think um, especially with Tony when Tony took him out of play when the chopper was getting ready to pick Jack and Hewitt up. And then as the chopper's getting ready to land, Chappelle pulls it back <laughs> and you see Jack running like, what are you doing? I'm like, the chopper's already there. The chopper's got to come back anyway. So why, <laughs> so why don't you just let Jack and Hewitt come back with it? I mean, you got to bring the chopper back anyway. That to me just sealed the deal right there. <laughs> that Chappelle is by far the worst authority figure on the show. And yet, somehow he's not the worst character at CTU <clears throat> in this stretch, because that would be Carrie. I hate Carrie. Appear- Correct. I mean, she's in 10 episodes. She's credited in an 11th, but she's not in... She's actually in 4 till 5 a.m., and I feel like it's no coincidence that that's probably the strongest episode of this run, apart from maybe the finale. I don't feel like that's a coincidence. And you what like, watching it, it's mad, because even when she's not in it, she's in it. Like... Tony and Michelle will be having a conversation and they'll, you know, the focus will pull slightly. So she's in the background. You can see her there watching over. And this is the case in basically every episode from when she turns up. And it's just so tiring thinking, what's she going to do next? She's going to foil Tony and Michelle's plan again. And she's going to wrap them out and they're going to have to do something off book again. And they're going to get in trouble again. I mean, there's no personality to her whatsoever. You know, Lord is Benedicto is fine. I don't particularly have a problem with the performance, but it's just one of the most gratingly annoying characters that the 24 did. She, Carrie, Carrie reminds me of that 
that coworker that you work with that no matter what you do, that coworker is always off in the background trying to find something to report to the manager because they want to be the manager. So they figure if they get in good with the manager that they'll be next in line. So they're always trying to tell on all their other coworkers. That's who Carrie reminds me of. I really like when Tony, which Carrie, Carrie threatens to blackmail Tony about the fact that they're still working with Jack and, you know, give me Michelle's job or I'll tell Chappelle. So Tony just tells Chappelle. <laughs> it's like, no, you're not having this promotion. I don't care. I know I'm going behind the back. You're going to tell him anyway. So how about I just expose you for trying to, um, for trying to blackmail me? It's a great play. I love it. And the thing is, is, when it first started, she was, you know, trying to cozy up to Tony. At the end of the day, she just wanted Michelle's job. She didn't care what she had to do, who she had to go through, or who she had to jump over to get that job. She wanted Michelle's job. So at first, she cozied up to Tony to let him know that, you know, Michelle helped Jack escape. And then when she, when she realized that Tony and Michelle were cozying up together, then, okay, well, suddenly it's, she's cozying up to Chappelle and trying to rat on Tony and Michelle. I won't quite put her ahead of Terry. She's on that, <laughs> she's on that very short list of characters that just annoy me to no end because every time, like, Tony would be talking – and you would see you would see the camera like focused in through the through the little fence and there's Carrie in the background with her little beady eyes watching them like a hawk. It's just every time Michelle was in a scene with a conversation, you saw that camera pan to Carrie in the background. And it's like, let's just get to the let's just get to the end game here and just figure it out. Because out of the ten episodes that she was in, none of them were probably she could have they could have done without her. Yeah. And other than they could have done without her. <laughs> yeah, and, and talking about awful characters that are on a list of, uh, of people that annoy or characters that annoy is also Sherry. <laughs> He's number we, two. <laughs> so we got Sherry that shows back up and uh, and apparently she's involved in another aspect of this whole, whole plot. So she shows up to get Hewitt and Jack is there searching when she comes in. The best part about all of that is when Sherry was trying to stand up to Jack and Jack shoots her. It's like, thank you, Jack. <laughs> Incorrect. Incorrect. The best part of that is when, not when Jack shoots just beside her, but actually when Hewitt escapes and stabs her and makes me wonder why he didn't like stab her slightly higher or to the left, you know, in the stomach or the heart. Um, that would have been, I think that would have been the best thing for Hewitt to do. Hewitt was nervous, okay? So he didn't quite get the knife pointed in the direction that he wanted to get it pointed in. No, fair enough. If Hewitt was standing there with a gun, it probably would have been shaking so much that he probably would have fired a couple rounds off the wall before he actually hit her. <laughs> so yeah. my favorite part of that scene had nothing to do with uh, Sherry, even though those were some pretty decent scenes. But when Jack first cornered Hewitt and he's trying to get Hewitt to give him, you know, the original cypress recording and he was like i want a lawyer and jack was like i'm your lawyer son <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was one of my favorite lines of the entire series <laughs> when he said that because jack was so serious looked him dead in his face and said i'm your lawyer son and you're basically going to tell me what i need to know and then at the end he would stab sherry sherry's on the couch writhing in pain and Chad just runs off. Help me. <laughs> he just leaves Sherry to die and runs off after she went. 
She's like, okay, I'll but, come back and get you. I'll come back and get you later. The best thing about that is if he told David that he did that, David probably wouldn't care. <laughs> David would have been like, well, Jack, did you have any other option? No, Mr. President. All right, then. <laughs> that, would, that would have been the extent of it right there. But Jack runs after Hewitt, and the entire time, like, you could tell Jack was getting frustrated. Like, when he caught Hewitt at the top of the stairs right before Hewitt got out into the open, and he was like, Hewitt, come out, and Hewitt looks like he's contemplating it, and Jack's looking at him, and he's and Hewitt's got the board in his hand, and then all of a sudden he busts his way out and starts to get out, and Jack just looks, and then he just says, damn it, and then just runs, and then just runs out after him. <laughs> Jack is like, come on, Hewitt, okay, I've had a long day. All right. I just want this recording. I don't care about you or your immunity or what you want or what you don't want or, or what you and Sherry got going on. I just want the recording. That's all I want. And Jack, you could tell he was getting frustrated. And then Jack said, if I shoot at you, I'm not going to miss. And then he proceeds to shoot him in the leg. He didn't miss. <laughs> he said he, would, he didn't tell him where he'd shoot him. He just said he wouldn't miss, and he didn't miss. So, And then he comes back, and Sherry's just laying there like she's about to take her last breath. Like, like why did you leave me? <laughs> Sherry gets her payback, though, a little bit later when Jack has an episode with his heart, and she mm-hmm. tries to get away. I mean, Hewitt, just to come back <laughs> on Hewitt, he's very unfortunate because you say that, Joel, about how Jack's sort of tired of everything. I mean, he's been killed three hours before. And so he doesn't really care about Alex. He doesn't care about his immunity. He doesn't care what's happening between them and Sherry. He just wants to prove to the president and to the cabinet that Cyrus recording's false. They won't go into war. Fine. The problem is that Hewitt is caught between two people who don't care about him. Sherry hangs out to dry. She says that she cares about him. And, you know, maybe she does. Maybe when, when Jack, before Jack shows up, when she goes looking for him, she genuinely cares about his welfare. I don't think that sounds like Sherry at all. But, you know, it's a possibility. We don't know. <laughs> Jack comes in and Sherry instantly fends for herself. I mean, she's somehow become like her self-interest has gone up like a hundred times. And we only saw her nine hours ago. It's staggering how self-involved she is. But yeah, Hewitt is caught between her and Jack, who, you know, in theory would do the best for him. But ultimately, as long as he gets the evidence that he needs, doesn't really care that much. This guy, this guy has actually brought them to the brink of nuclear war. So kind of who cares what happens to him? So Hewitt is very unfortunate that he ends up between these two, I think. He could have picked a better person to confide in than Sherry Palmer, I will say that. Yeah, but, you know, he quite rightly, he gets the vibe that he can't trust either of them. What's he meant? You know, he goes with Jack. Okay, fair enough. That's probably the best option. But we, you know, we know that's the best option. Yeah. yeah and then, of course, Jack ends up working with Sherry to be able to get the Kingsley because the best bet that they have after the recording gets destroyed there. So they're going to try to record Kingsley live to be able to get the proof that they need. So Jack has to trust Sherry to follow through, which, I mean, I think Jack definitely realizes that she's not very trustworthy, but it's like his last option. So it's like, I have to. Credit to her. Yes, he does it. She does because of her self-interest. She's trying to look out for herself and she knows that, okay, if I don't follow through, it's not going to end well for me at all. So she basically had no choice in the matter. Because that recording also implicated her. There were some some recorded conversations that implicated her. And rightly so, she didn't want those to get out. And probably more relevant, Kingsley would have had her killed at some stage. So Yeah, that showdown there when they get to that stadium was pretty cool magnificent it is so so good it's a little uh it was a great scene 
but it's also funny when Sherry and Kingsley were having that conversation and basically Kingsley admitted, you know, to fabrication of the Cypress recording and you got CTU on the call, you got the president on the call, you got Palmer on the call. Basically, as soon as he admits to the fabrication of the recording, all of a sudden you hear everybody asking, is that good enough? Is that good enough? Is that, is that, is that enough, Mr. President? Is that? And the whole time Sherry's standing there like a deer in headlights, like, okay, that's why they're it. asking. That's why they're asking. <laughs> like he's, he admitted it. Can can I go now? <laughs> I mean, so I thought that was a uh, that was that was a little, and you could tell uh, Prescott desperately did not want to, but at the same time the recording was was live, so it's like he really didn't have any choice. But you could tell that he didn't want to call off those planes. It's a bit of a I've been proven wrong sort of thing. And obviously, you know, he's ascended to the presidency through this as well. It kind of looks a little bit bad that actually David was right this whole time in his betrayal. I mean, he said he resigned, didn't he? If he lost the trial, he ends up handing offering his resignation anyway. He kind of knows that this is it for him. Um, so although he doesn't have to do the right thing, it's obviously not ideal for him. I say the Coliseum finale, the tension build on that conversation with Kingsley and Sherry, where you kind of feel that Sherry could just get shot at any second, Jack trying to come in and save the day. And then the actual sort of the, the shootout scene, the music in that again, Sean Callery, so, so good. It's, it's one of the best climaxes. I, I don't think it's better than, than Jack at the docks, um, but it's, it's right up there for me. Yeah. One thing I liked was the look on Kingsley's face when he's talking to Sherry and he gets on his radio and tells the sniper to take her out and there's nothing. And he looks up and just look on his face like, okay, something's wrong. There's more here than what had appeared. And so <laughs> and then he tells the, the guy right next to him to take her out and then Jack takes that guy out. Yeah, it was good. Run, Sherry! <laughs> <laughs> Jack, and it's, it's amazing that Jack did all of this with a bad heart. <laughs> like he did, like, it almost he, got him though he did more with a bad heart than most people could do with a healthy heart yeah <laughs> and Kingsley is one of I will say Kingsley is probably one of the more underrated villains of the series because he's somebody that I would have liked to have seen more of because I just thought his demeanor and his calmness like when he got the phone with Sherry he knew he was being set up he knew it but he was like I don't really have any choice so I thought that he's somebody that I would have liked to have probably seen a little bit earlier in the season, just because of the simple fact that I liked his character and the way that he portrayed his scenes. So I thought he was one of the more underrated villains of the entire the entire series to me. His first mm. scene where he screams at Ronnie on the phone and obviously talks to Jack, and also later on when Alexander Trepkos comes in and talks to him about Max, and he just throws him that line, Max can be unhappy. We're all un- entitled to our feelings. Like, he just has that real charisma to him. And um, you say that he's not really... Fa- by anything it's it's you know marwan is almost sociopathic with sort of a straight face at every single turn in season four kingsley is kind of on in that vein but in the way of like just calmness um you are right he's so good it would have been nice to see more of him despite you know he's not the drazen he's not going to go and i know he does kill a couple of people himself he's not the type to manage a situation by himself he's not the type to go and kill a room for the people he sort of micromanages it but he does it very well He's not the yep. one to get his hands dirty. Yes. Another one kind of along the same vein I would have liked to see more from going forward would have been Max. 
So he shows up there at the end. It's like, you think Kingsley's the guy, and then there's the guy above Kingsley. And it just would have been interesting to kind of see a little bit more play out from him. Apparently, in the game, he was killed in the game. But as far as a TV series and all that, there's no continuation of his story. And it would have been nice to at least get a little bit of that. We can talk more about him in detail next week when we do the sort of season wrap podcast. Um, I've played the game, so I'll talk a little bit about his role in Uh, that as well. Yeah, I played it recently, actually. It's very good. Anyway, it is weird that he only has the two episodes at the end here, particularly because he masterminds possibly one of the biggest plots, certainly at this point. You know, the nuclear bombs have gone off. Great. But he also tries to kill the president through the returning Mandy, which is, you know, lovely to see Mia Kirsch back. I mean, that that scene, obviously I wasn't watching it at the time. I don't know what you two reckon, but I reckon that that scene where Palmer collapses at the end is a bigger, more shocking, oh my God, I need season three now, cliffhanger than Terry's death was. What you two guys think, presumably having watched it at the time. It certainly wasn't more enjoyable. I'll say that. <laughs> okay, Terry hates a side, Joel. <laughs> okay, well, Terry hated side. It was probably a bigger cliffhanger in the grand scheme of, of the overall series. I don't think it was as emotional as the Terry death because, you know, Jack was holding her in his arms and then you saw flashbacks, which you never saw again. So you saw flashbacks of Jack and Terry, and I thought that was a little bit more emotional from a, a storyline perspective. But I thought the cliffhanger, because at the end of season one, Terry's death was definite. Like, you knew that she was dead. But the end of season two, I thought, was bigger from a, um overall arc perspective, because you didn't know whether Palmer was dead or not. The anticipation of, was this them killing him off, or is he going to be back? I thought, so from an overall arc perspective, I thought David's assassination attempt was probably bigger from that point of view. But as far as a finality and a an emotional standpoint, Terry hate aside, I thought her her death was probably a little bit more on the emotional side. I think overall it was uh, a really good, and I mean, you had the heartbeat right there at the end inside of the clock as it ticked away it gave it give it a different feel because we've had silent clocks and obviously we had the regular ticking um or the thump of the the clock and this was a heartbeat and so i thought that was a really nice touch mm. in that regard yeah i mean my feeling is the terry death is more impactful based on first of all because of you know the connection to it is joel said the emotion flashbacks all of that stuff involving jack but also because we've not really seen anything like this in 24 we've not really seen anything like this in general of that sort of big blow of, of a character dying when we come to the end of season two we've had that with terry we've had that with mason you know jack's died we've had the cliffhanger with jack dying and now it's palmer and i just feel like it's not a shocking a moment but it is more of that that typical 24 i need to know what happens next right now and you know you get left on on edge for six months up until november 2003 for season three i don't feel like it was quite it would have been quite that strong at the end of season one after terry's death thinking oh my god i need to know what happens next as joel said there's finality to it whereas this is so open-ended you are just left sort of in shock at oh my god are they actually going to do this what happens next yeah, I think one of the things, too, that makes it a little bit more impactful over the other deaths, I mean, you talked about Terry, and I think that was impactful and emotional because of the connection to Jack more than Terry herself. And then we get to season two, and we have Mason doing that, and I, there's the emotion with that because there was the buildup for 
several episodes of him redeeming himself. And now he basically steps in and says, Jack, I'm going to take your place. So, so that kind of rises to the occasion. But with David Palmer, it's two full seasons. I mean, people absolutely being endeared to him. I mean, out of anybody in these two seasons up to this point, there's Jack Bauer and there's David Palmer. And it's like, those are the two characters that you're really bonding with. And to see him getting put in that position really made that. And then the fact that there, there's no more episodes after that, as far as anybody was able to watch for months, as you said. So it just amplifies that even more. Now we sort of, we ignored Joel's Terry hate there. I'm going to say something <laughs> to move us on to really, really shock Joel. I don't dislike Kim at all in these last six episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Joel has just collapsed back in his chair, so I'll continue talking while he recovers. And actually, the scene at the end of episode 22, 5 to 6 a.m., Kim killing Gary Matheson, I also think is one of the best scenes of season two. Joel really did not like that. Okay. I guess she was okay in those last six episodes. I didn't completely hate her. I didn't necessarily like her, but I didn't completely hate her. Say anything nice, can he? He can't say anything nice about Kim. (laughs) But I, I don't know. She's a good actress. Like, I like the actress. But some of those scenes were just so unnecessary and so cringeworthy. I did like the scene with her and Gary Matheson. Like, the calling her, well, I mean, like, I told you how much I liked the scene with her and Jack when Jack was basically telling her goodbye and when he thought he was going to die. That I enjoyed. I also enjoyed the scene with her and, and Gary Matheson. Because I felt like that needed to be paid off. Because how long has it been since we've seen Gary Matheson at this point? Long time. Several episodes. Several episodes, I think. So if you're watching it for the first time, you may think that you know they just forgot about it or they just dropped it. So you start to forget about Gary a little bit until you see him pop up at his house when um, when Kim is inside. The scene there when she basically falls on top of him and knocks him out and then she calls her dad and Jack is trying to talk her through it. <laughs> and Jack basically tells his daughter to shoot him in the chest. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's a lovely bonding moment there. But I thought, yeah. I thought that that was a pretty good scene. I thought she got better as the season went on because I'll say the first half probably of the season, I tended to turn the volume down a little bit during her scenes <laughs> because it was just so cringeworthy. But I thought that once she got on her own, like once she got away from Bradley, what's the guy's name? Her boyfriend. Miguel? Yeah, Miguel. Once she got away from Miguel, I thought that she got a little bit better once she got on her own and got on the run. And I thought she got better as far as her material, especially when it came to the creep that let her stay at his cabin or whatever it was. So I thought that that was pretty good. The final episodes, I will say that Kim was not horrible. I will say that she was not horrible. Um, She's just not my favorite character. Mm -hmm. I would have to say that I appreciated this conclusion to the Gary run. I didn't really care for the whole storyline with Gary and they were taking it. So, so they were going on and on about it for too long, I think. And maybe that's why they stayed away from Gary for 12 episodes or whatever it was. As I, when, after she shot him, I, I, I loved it when, when he said, I want you to shoot him again. And Kim's like, what? <laughs> and so I, mean, I understand Jack though, because, cause like, okay, you got to make sure. I mean, if you just shoot him once, he may or may not. And she may have not hit 
the right spot or whatever, and you don't want him getting back up and becoming more of a threat. It's like, okay, you got to do it again, make sure. And that way you can keep yourself safe. And, but for Kim is like, what in the world? Like, it makes me wonder if she's ever shot a gun. I'm sure she hasn't shot a person. I'm not, I wonder if she's ever shot a gun. Um, and so that would have just been all this stuff going on at the same time. Cause it's like a new experience, new situation. And I mean, she's been in danger plenty of times. I just don't know about that. Well, I, I mean, I think, I think and I may have said this before, but in season one, you kind of got the, the storyline around Kim and Terry, you kind of got it because it connected to the overall arc. Yeah. The Kim and Terry storyline connected to the larger storyline of the Drazens and even before that. In season two, I felt like because her storyline is so separate from everything that was going on during that day, it felt like it was just they were giving her something just to give her something during the season. It didn't feel like there was really very much purpose to it because we never saw the little girl again after she got taken away. It didn't really do much in the overall scheme of things. So it just felt like at times it was just there just to give her something to do. I think they ne- they, I think Jack guiding Kim through it is fantastic. Um, you said it's sort of a weird bonding thing. Yeah, it is in a way, but it's also this sort of crazy good federal agent dad talking her daughter through killing someone who's, who's going to kill her if she doesn't do it first. And I also love how remarkably calm Kim is through it. I mean, you know, she's panicking, crying and everything, but she's also calm enough and level-headed enough and smart enough to hide from Gary and then try and hit him and then know to take the gun and to call Jack for help and, like, work out what to do. And actually, although on both occasions she sort of hesitates for a second when Jack tells her to shoot him, she does it. Sort of the cold look in her eye when she does it the second time is like, no, this I need to, having done it once, being terrified of it the first time, the second time, I can do this one now. And even in the next episode, when when Jack sends Kate to come and pick her up, I mean, I think they nail the reaction there, that she's utterly terrified. She points the gun at Kate because who is this person? I don't know who this person is. She's not a cop. She's not a CTU agent. She's not anyone. She's some random person that's just come waltzing into this house 45 minutes after I've shot someone, after I've had one of the worst days of my life. Mm-hmm. I think they absolutely nail her total fear reaction of Kate. So yeah, I think Kim in this little stretch. I mean, it helps she's not in episodes 19 or 20 at all. I think that also contributes to them being quite good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think having had a very rough season um, of, of storyline, Kim actually is is very good in these last few. Kate is also in my top five of characters that I dislike the most throughout the entire series. <laughs> but we can continue with that thought. And so next week we're going to... Next week, we're going to go back and we're just going to do a a wrap up overview of season two. So we uh, welcome your feedback. You can go to 24faithful.com and be able to do that. Or you can even send a voice message by calling 405-771-0567 and be able to send your feedback that way. And we definitely appreciate you listening. Share this with any other 24 fan that you know of. We will look to talk to you in the next episode.